0: hello hello welcome to our drop the stamp podcast if it is your first time tuning in welcome and if you've been following the gang for a while welcome back my friend This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USES, SAIS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.DropTheStamp.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others, tagging the pod, because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. This upcoming episode is one of a kind, the result of a fruitful partnership with INSPO Science Canada. INSPO Science Canada is a nonprofit organization that provides avenues for aspiring young scientists in Canada to feature their research at global research and innovation fairs. We already have INSPO Science alumni on the pod, like Sean Bay or Brandon Matush, but now, in the current pandemic, INSPO organized North America's premier online science fair. With 30k dollars in awards, 2 million plus dollars in scholarships, 15 internship and lab opportunities and three fully paid trips to compete in Korea, Spain and New York. You probably have seen the pod encouraging you to apply and I'm overjoyed if you did or recommended it to someone because this fair presented some wonderful opportunities. The evaluators were from Harvard, University of Toronto, IBM to name a few and sponsored awards were from Nokia, Scotia Bank. And guess what? The People's Choice Award from Drop the Stem. And drum rolls, please, because the People's Choice Awards winner is Kushi Parikh, who also received silver medal, $18,000 entrance scholarship to the Rochester Institute of Technology, and a $500 bursary to the Knowledge Society 2020-21 session. This inspiring roboticist designed a deep neural network, to detect antimicrobial resistance in Streptococcus pneumoniae. Her study presents a proof-of-concept for the application of CNNs to detect AMR polymorphisms in bacterial DNA, which can be extended to other pathogenic antibiotic combinations in the future. She also designed a Convolutional Network to diagnose Lyme disease previously, received Silver Prize in Genius Olympiad, the Petite Family Foundation's Women in Science Award, and won Best Policy Paper, Diplomat and Delegate at ASU Model UN Conference. Kushi tutors struggling students and teaches kids how to build autonomous robots. So let's just jump right into the episode, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and feel galvanized to better our present and future. As expanded on earlier, this is a special episode in collaboration with Inspo Science Canada, where Kushi, you became the People's Choice Award winner, so welcome on the podcast, and first of all, congratulations! Thank you so much, it's very nice to hear that. On this podcast, we are going to discover the project you submitted in more detail that obviously gained a lot of traction. But to start off, in order to understand our past, we have to date back a little bit. So do you remember your first encounter with the wonders of science?
1: In the fourth grade, I competed in a first robotics competition. Something that I really liked about that competition was that it wasn't just about robots. Each year, there was a different theme. So the theme the first year I competed was Nature's Fury. Teams would build and program robots to compete tasks on the field, but they'd also create a project related to that year's theme to bring change in their community. That year, we created a kid's kit for comfort and survival during a natural disaster. A few years later, the theme was animal allies, and our team prototyped a device which would attach to the bottom of a boat and emit like a special wave frequency to alert manatees to keep their distance. The last year I competed, the theme was hydrodynamics, and our team tested alternative cement aggregates to reduce sand mining. For me, it was that connection between robots and the STEM solution for the community, which made me realize the potential of science to positively impact the world. And I love that feeling of bringing change. So I stuck with the STEM
0: field. I think it's so great that you could reflect on those memories that you've gained during your scientific experience, because it's not just a healthy and uplifting habit to practice in your daily life, but also a celebration of where you were and how far you've come and how those experiences have shaped your outlook in science and how you conduct research at the moment, right? Yeah, for me, it's it's all about the people who I get to
1: impact with the research work that I produce. Not so much about what the research work itself is, but the broader impact it can have on my community and the
0: people around me. That external impact, you can feel that, okay, this is not just a robot, which is praiseworthy in itself, but it can be used for the better to shape your community. And that people center approach, we can say, that made you stick with the STEM fields in the long run. That's exactly it.
1: Like when I was first working with the neural network, I had. A choice to be able to create a neural net that could play a card game very well, or a neural net that would be able to recognize a certain type of rash to help detect early symptoms of a disease called Lyme disease. And I went with the second option, but both were equally difficult and required the same amount of skill. I went with The uh, using image recognition to diagnose Lyme disease because it had a greater impact on my community and the people around me. So it's not skill alone that makes a great scientist or an impactful research work. It's also the, the broader community implications that that work could hold
0: highlight that you brought your work on Lyme disease into the picture where you've implemented convolutional neural networks, but that you also highlighted the fact that sometimes, and it does not only happen in our daily life when we have to choose from different options and we have to deliberate and use wisdom to connect the dots and see what is the most useful decision, but in research works as well where you are presented with multiple opportunities and you have to stick with the road. And I'm glad that you did because um, that prepped the way for you to work on convolutional neural networks. That was actually a project you submitted to INSPO-IRIC.
1: Yes, that's right. I submitted a project which used convolutional neural networks to uh, create an antimicrobial resistance profile from
0: an unknown bacteria strain from Streptococcus pneumonia. And why did you choose this organism? So let's introduce the protagonist of your project in a way.
1: Streptococcus pneumonia is the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia and invasive disease like sepsis and meningitis. But it's also a primary cause of viral secondary bacterial infection. And historically, during influenza pandemics, including N1H1 and even COVID-19, it increases the morbidity and mortality rates of patients who are infected with both streptococcus pneumonia and the viral infection. So I thought that it was very relevant to what's going on right now. That's why I chose this organism, but also my work represents a proof of concept. So I can take whatever I did with streptococcus pneumonia and implement that with other bacterial strains such as tuberculosis or MRSA, which are both highly antimicrobially resistant and profiling those strains could help researchers get a better idea of not only the growing resistance rates, but also it could help doctors prescribe effective antibiotics to treat
0: infections absolutely and just as you said that those secondary bacterial infections can make the outcome even more severe as you've re- reflected on the mortality rates in terms of bacteria we hear the phrase antimicrobial resistant a lot these days. And the numbers have just um, kick-started in a way. And we have a lot of blind spots in terms of antimicrobial resistance and microbiology. But you've targeted this problem from a computational neural network side. Why did you choose that path? And how did you essentially train your system? And, and can you explain? what training that system means? Because uh, CNN might be a flashy term, but we don't necessarily know what that um, truly encapsulates. Sure. So CNNs are just a special
1: type of neural network specifically geared towards computer vision and image recognition. So uh, some places where we've seen CNNs at work are during those like robot capture surveys that you might take, and then you have to try and pick images that contain a certain uh, type of like traffic lights or stairs. And then the computer will verify if the images that you selected were correct and let you proceed based on computer vision systems. Like self-driving cars and certain autonomous robots will also use CNNs to check their surroundings and survey around them to make sure it's safe to proceed. Convolutional neural nets process image inputs. So I can't just input the DNA strains as they are. They need to be pre-processed and converted into images before they can be used to train a prediction model. So what I did first was because every DNA strain was a little bit different because they were different organisms. So I aligned them all together so that they had the same number of characters in the sequence. And that way, when I converted them into an image, Aligned nucleotides would occupy the same pixel coordinates. So the letters A, T, G, C, and null spaces were converted into red, green, yellow, blue, and black squares. So in the end, I had a like a 300 by 600 pixel image, and I would input those into my network. And it was the first of its kind network which treats DNA strains as images in order to learn about resistance and susceptibility so each strain was classified as resistant or susceptible at first then the machine would take a guess and depending on whether it was right or wrong it would adapt its parameters to become more accurate the
0: next round thank you for the explanation it was very vivid and I like the fact that you can code the DNA's sort of secret ABC that now has been um, deciphered for more than 60 years into visualized images that you can work with um, and that you have the parameters aligned in this way. You've mentioned susceptibility and resistance to antibiotics. Uh, What's the resistant rate of this um, specific type of microorganism? We might have heard about beta-lactam and tetracycline, if somebody is familiar with microbiology, but how uh, many resistance um, strains uh, did you have to test? What was your methodology like in this realm? The pool that I was using of the different strains, they had different
1: resistance rates, but the median resistance rate was 51.3%, and they ranged from 15 to 89% 89% and the 89% resistant was the penicillin. And that was just in my sample, but they're quite accurate representations. I tried to distribute the strains in such a way that they represented accurately the resistance rates around the world of that bacteria. So it, it, just, it varies very greatly. And I think part of it is due to the amount of interest that scientists and researchers have in resistant strains. So those are sequenced more frequently than, than susceptible strains are because we place more emphasis on what strains are resistant so we can see what their genetic makeup is and then target them in a certain way. So it, it just part of it depended on what strains were available for me to use that were already sequenced. But also another part of it was trying to emulate what the global resistance levels look
0: like. I understand. Now that you've implemented CNN in this project and you've tested those different rates you've mentioned, first of all, what kind of results have you received in this project and how do you imagine developing the future? What are the next steps you want to take? My resistance or prediction
1: model performed with 92% accuracy and... This project presents like a proof of concept, which can be applied to any strains with enough DNA sequences available to train a prediction model. In the future, I would want to share my work with local bioinformatics companies and explore the potential of applying my best performing prediction model in a clinical setting. And it's possible because the network achieved a high performance accuracy and a high F-beta score of 93%. As next-generation sequencing technology becomes more widely available and cost-effective, this prediction model becomes a more lucrative option for profiling strains.
0: That's a very impressive word because you are targeting such a niche, like antimicrobial resistance combined with um, neural networks, um, that I think is highly needed. And EMR is on the rise in Europe and in the US and many parts of the world. With this medical aspect and approach, you also have the people center side, you mentioned that you can help people in this easier way to decipher what kind of antibiotic would be the best use to, well, first of all, medical professionals, but through them affecting people. And you mentioned Lyme disease previously, where you also implemented CNNs. How has that gained experience helped you in your current work?
1: So in eighth grade, I programmed an image recognition network to diagnose Lyme disease. And that represented a binary classification model. So an image input into the network was either Lyme positive or Lyme negative. There were only two classes. So the process of classification was relatively simple. This year, I was able to build on the experience I gained to attempt a multi classification network. Each image I inputted into the AMR profiling model had five correct classification tags instead of just one. So before training the model, I created a list of 10 element one-hot encoded binary arrays which represented the correct classification of each image. For example, the first index in the array represents suffox susceptible. Images whose vector tags have a one in the first index are suffox to susceptible, while those with a zero in the first index are not. I'm grateful for the amount of exposure I had at a young age to machine learning. It's provided an amazing foundation for me to approach more av- more advanced problems. There's so much that I and we as a group of computer scientists can still learn about machine learning and computer vision. And that's what I love about this field is that there's still so much to explore.
0: Yes, and that gained experience helps you decipher new techniques and implement multi-level classification and then with that set of skills you can move on to the next project and uh, just continuously learn more and more and practice lifelong learning. Now I'm gonna just tell you change up a little bit because you said that there are so many aspects of science to explore. We like to dig deeper in this podcast a little bit and have a future-focused approach you can say. So With your knowledge and background in robotics, how do you envision the future of robotics? So I build competitive robots. Most of them are driver controlled. In the future, I
1: envision that those robots would be mostly, if not completely autonomous. There are lots of split-second decisions a driver needs to make when maneuvering their robot because the conditions on the field are always changing. Game elements are being moved, other robots are playing too, so the transition to robot autonomy will definitely incorporate some form of computer vision and pattern recognition. This pattern applies to other robots as well, behind the scenes. For example, for robots involved in packaging and assembly, although they face far fewer moments where a split-second decision is needed, in the odd case where there's a disruption in the production cycle, these bots will in the future be equipped with the capacity to debug any malfunction and return to normal production all by themselves without any human interference.
0: Now you are changing the laws of traditional laws of robotics that a robot must obey the orders given it by human. But now you are saying that no, it will be capable of performing tasks without human intervention on its own.
1: Yeah, and we're starting to see that happening a little bit already with uh, self-driving cars and you know, drones that can auto correct. So machines are getting smarter and that's not necessarily a bad thing for humans. Instead, uh, it allows humans to do more with those machines.
0: They have contributed massively to our industries and enabling devices and having a great effect on the medical field as well. So I hope that you agree with me that any scientific invention can be good if it's stewarded or if it's directed in a beneficial way, adding to the society and not taking away.
1: Yes, that's exactly what science means to me. It's the ability to make your mark and leave an impact. Discovery is extremely important, but it's more about what a scientist chooses to do with that discovery, which makes science a compelling field to me. There's so much to learn and share and so much room to advance.
0: With that creative and innovative mindset, as a roboticist, if you could build anything, the options are limitless in this way. What would you make?
1: If I could build anything at all, I would create a teleportation device. Not only would this reduce emissions from cars, but it would also free up lots of land where former roads would have been. Also just like think about the human side of it. My grandparents live in India and I love them a lot and I wanna see them every day. And with that device, I could just hop in transport myself to India have a cup of tea with them and then come back and go to school on time so it not only has an outstanding impact on the environment but also on human lives as well and that's why I would build that particular device
0: that's so cool that would totally alter the way we see transportation
1: (laughs) that's true I mean Public transportation is already becoming advanced with those lightning fast speed trains. And just imagine if you could just step into like a, a I just imagine it being like a round portal and then instantly you're in a totally new place. It would, I think, contribute to globalization in a whole another way. People would be traveling everywhere, learning about new cultures and become
0: more accepting of different ways of life. That sci-fi-like transport system might also feed uh, a lot of people's lost. I'm waiting for your publication. Let me know when that's going to be out. Okay, <laughs> for sure. We got to mention, because it's an essential part of your project and what you've been continuously and diligently working on, that it's part of Inspo Sciences IREC. So could you expand on your virtual science fair experience in these unprecedented times? The Inspo Fair was my first
1: virtual science fair experience because my state science fair had actually been canceled. So instead, what they did was they sent out links to all the applicants to apply to different fairs and Inspo was one of them. So when I first received like the letter that i was accepted into the fair as a finalist i didn't know what to expect on my in- at my interview i spent like half an hour getting my background perfectly as i wanted it with everything clean and you know i tried virtual backgrounds too and what was interesting was that instead of a traditional poster board like we usually see at science fairs i used a google slides presentation and shared my screen And it was interesting because it allowed me to segment my presentation and introduce information little by little. And I liked that presentation format a lot. I thought it was very effective. And it was nice. It was still like the one-on-one experience with the judge, and we could still communicate quite effectively and ask each other questions. And I made some really nice contacts along the way because I always make it a point to – make sure I know my judges' emails or contact information so I can reach out to them after because they're interviewing me, but I can still ask them questions about what they do and how they're involved in the field because the judges are experts in bioinformatics. And there are some really cool projects that they're working on. So it was really great to meet them and to talk to them virtually or otherwise.
0: You've given some essential advice that I believe many of the listeners can take to heart. The first being that you've implemented in this virtual environment a Google science presentation uh, that you could easily translate those complex concepts you've utilized in your project into digestible pieces because... I think that when a judge or anyone looks at a project, it might be a wow effect, you know, with all those data uh, numbers and text presenting on your project board, but it's it's more understandable in that way. And the second being that during your judging experience, you can actually make sure that your communication does not stop at the science fair, but it can continue and go forward.
1: It was really great to meet all my judges and to talk to them and to learn about what they do. Uh, One of the judges I had was working on like a machine learning network in in a hospital, like a cloud-based network to be able to detect dementia in aging people. And it was was a really interesting work. And it's nice to make those connections and those contacts because then you can get inspired for what your next idea might be depending on what you see around you and what kind of projects interest you.
0: Without a doubt, and yeah, that would have been my uh, next question: the judges' project that stood out to you. um, But now you've used a little bit of mind trick and (laughs) guessed my follow-up. But it's really great to hear that you know you can be inspired by those judges who are conducting such amazing and inspirational work in their own perspective fields that can propel you forward in your own research journey as well. Did you interact with the other students, or perhaps follow their? unfortunately
1: i could not because when we're in a traditional science fair usually like there's some downtime where we're waiting for the judges to come up to our boards where we'll learn a little bit about each other and we'll make friends but with the virtual science fair experience it wasn't quite as simple as that because it was a lot more one-on-one time with the judge and once your interview is over you could just log out and You couldn't, there was no time for you to really talk to any of the other applicants. But what was interesting was you can still learn about what their projects were because IRAC had put together a really nice website where you could look at the projects in your category like them give them hearts which is I mean I that's why I'm here today was because I received some hearts from my competitors and from friends and family who had seen my project or just from people who had visited the website and thought that the project was interesting but you could still learn about what they're doing it's just I miss that personal connection of being able to talk to them as friends instead of like you know, seeing them as competitors or just scientists, because it's always about the people behind
0: the project. Very much so. I'm glad that uh, a lot of people hearted your project and that you're here today. And I'm going to take this opportunity and tell the listeners that if they want to experience the greatest works now conducted by scientists today, to go on that website and specifically also check your project because you have submitted information. I think it would be really mind blowing and very interesting for people to see and learn more about your work as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, on the website, there is my full research paper. There's a short video of me explaining what the project is about in a little bit more depth. You can read a little bit about me too. I have like a bio description there and that goes for all the competitors. They have the same three things on their own profiles. And it was it was really interesting to flip through all of them and see. I was like really surprised by how many machine learning projects there were. And it is astonishing to see how much The field has grown since when I did it in eighth grade, it was like super novel and a whole new thing. And now we have that technology, but what's novel is how you apply it instead of what it actually is. So.
0: That's, I think, a very unique approach in ML, and I'm interested to hear about your experience in that research. What are some of the aspects of ML, not necessarily scientific, but how it's applied, has changed over the years, and perhaps who are conducting it? Because I guess that um, some girls might also choose this route.
1: Machine learning is one of those fields
0: where As long as
1: you have a computer with sufficient storage space, you're good. And that's why, like, how the pandemic has affected how I'm able to research and conduct uh, experiments, it hasn't really changed too much uh, because even though I was looking forward to working at a lab this year because I'm old enough, uh, I can't because obviously there's limited lab access now with a bunch of health and safety regulations. But That's OK, because I have experience working with computers and I can do this safely and remotely as well. And so can anyone, anyone with a computer that has enough storage space and with the will and a drive to learn how to do it. Machine learning is possible and it is um, it's, it's really interesting because there's so much you can do with it. For example, at my school, there was a girl who used flow, cytome- flow cytometry to uh, predict, like, cancer in certain cells. And she also used image recognition for that as well. Uh, there are different types of neural networks you can use. You can use artificial neural networks, convolutional neural networks. It just depends on your your uh, Whatever you're doing. There was someone who used neural networks to make taxi systems more effective. This was at the inspo fair. I looked at some some other projects and they had used like machine learning to optimize Uber and Lyft and transportation systems like that.
0: Affects various areas of life and has an extensive range of societal impact. Also like the fact that a lot of people say that CS will and is now defining our present and of course in the upcoming years. But if someone wants to dive deep into research, but doesn't have lab access or go to private consultations, especially in the corona times, you can actually make your understand in the best way, DIY research at home by implementing ML and picking up skills and training your computer with sufficient storage space, as you've said. So I think it's very encouraging that you can accomplish all of that from in front of your computer.
1: That, that's my favorite part about it is that it's always been like super low hassle or maintenance because it's it's very safe. There's no safety procedures you have to worry about. It's just you and your brain and what you can do. So,
0: Oh, yeah. And with safety procedures, a lot of plus paperwork as well.
1: Yeah, that is true. I, I had a lot of friends at my school fair who were filling out like piles and piles of stuff. And I was like, no, I don't have to do that. But it just shows that you don't need to do something that is like super extravagant to still make a really big impact.
0: Yes. And a lot of times those are little things, the niche areas you have to find. And I think that might be a stereotypical idea about scientists that they are making such grand works which is true in a lot of ways but what we might not realize that the greatest change occurs in very specific places science projects not just targets for example microbiology but a unique perspective unique pixel in that whole picture of microbiology. And if you've got it, nail it down, you are good to go because you've been part a part of the system. And that's why we need more people who are prescient about science and, and work forward through collaboration.
1: I agree. I agree that science is definitely a growing field and there's always room for new scientists. So anyone who's listening, science wants you. So get out there and discover and explore and experiment.
0: absolutely and i think it's a very encouraging message just to to start doing it because starting it can be a little bit intimidating but i think that science might have a lot of surprises for you down the road you are i can sense it and i also know it that your volunteer service encapsulates tutoring um, students or you know teaching kids build autonomous robots reflecting on the fact that you want to give this knowledge to people so during those experiences what would you like your students to take from those lessons with you so i'd like my students to take away Uh, the lesson that
1: self-education is possible and it's the most effective way of learning new concepts. We have kits of parts for small robots that we give uh, the students. So first they'll take inventory of their kits and make sure they have all the parts they need. Then I'll take away their instruction manuals and ask them to build a robot or some kind of structure pictured on the lid of the kits, and they're given hints whenever they're confused, but the process of active learning and self-correction sticks with the kids longer than if they're just following the instructions. They also feel more pride in their results. Especially right now when school's online, I want my students to remember their resilience while building that robot and apply it to problems they might face while learning from home and continue to
0: self-correct and actively learn. That is awesome to hear that you... Provide them that free space, that beneficial environment to be able to make mistakes and, and fail eventually because that is a, one of the most beneficial ways to learn and correct yourselves and also teach you humility and how to overcome those obstacles from a different approach? Yes. uh, It's a lot of fun for me too, because I can
1: learn from them and their approaches to it because everyone goes about it in a different way. And that's my favorite part about having an instruction-free environment where the kids are just building it however they think that it should be built. And everyone does it a different way, does the steps in a different order, tries and fails at different parts. It's, It's interesting. And it shows you a lot about how a person
0: thinks and do you have a story to share on that perhaps you know something that has uh surprised you during your work with them or uh, a student close to your heart in that way i teach my sister a
1: lot and she came to one of the camps one day and she was building a robot and it was a bird that she was supposed to build and when when it came time to program the bird, she did it in a way that surprised me because you were supposed to use one specific block to to cause the bird to move, but she was able to do it with a different sequence of blocks. And it's a simple program. It's not like text-based programming, but it was interesting because she approached it in a totally different way. And I was going to tell her that's wrong, change it. But before I could say anything, she had just done it and it was working. And I was like, it's interesting to see how when you don't know what to expect, the organic thinking process is a whole lot
0: different. I love it. If your sister actually brought in that element of surprise for you.
1: I didn't even know that you could you could do it with that sequence of blocks. I wasn't introduced I wasn't as familiar with the programming. Even she wasn't, but it's interesting because I already I walked in there and I knew how it had to be done. So I had like a, a vision of what I wanted all the kids to do. But then they were just doing whatever they thought would work and a lot of the time they was successful and it was surprising to see how their trial and error process was, it it was so
0: effective. Yes, and I really like the analogy you, you brought in here or the more broader term expansion because we might have a single approach one the approach okay this is going to be the way i'm going to go about this problem but having that flexible uh, and beneficially childlike mindset the ability to you know be courageous to miss the mark is very helpful i totally agree it's all
1: about risks and it's all about mistakes and learning along the way
0: on that note could you tell time you helped someone become more successful or, you know, influence a person for the better because you also tutor struggling students um, in, in robotics or in other subjects as well?
1: This is about someone who I wasn't tutoring, but I was working with her. She was a girl my age who was losing both her vision and her speech. So I worked with a team of people based in Florida virtually over Zoom. And we designed on SolidWorks, we uh, catted some 3D printed charms, which had braille on the back and a symbol on the front. For example, a charm had the W letter on the back and then a glass of water on the front. And we incorporated the girl's personal style and catchphrases, things she would like to say on the necklace as well. And it made me realize that nothing can change our ability to innovate and create for positive impact in the community, because even though we were online, we were quarantined, we were still able to achieve something amazing and create something that had a lasting impact on someone's life. And it allowed her to continue to communicate and make the most of her circumstances. And she has an amazing personality. So it allowed her to express all of that, even though she was losing some of her sensory abilities, she was still able to communicate with the people around her and be the same
0: bubbly girl that we met and we worked with that is so touching thank you for sharing this story i also like seeing through this meeting or through this journey you've taken during quarantine that you were able to incorporate her uh, bubbly and gregarious personality by bringing in that fashion design aspect into the charms. And I think it just really shows the intersectionality of science combined with the humane aspect of it.
1: I agree. Science is one of those fields that pervades all of the other different uh, aspects of life, including like humanitarian efforts and... uh, working for like in the fashion industry it's it's everywhere science is always it's always
0: where there is progress it's a big driver for change yeah and it's great to be you know an element uh, a forceful element in that change you are also invested in other areas such as the Model UN or United Nations Conference. And with that, you won Best Policy Paper, Diplomat and Delegate at ASU's Arizona State University's uh, Go Devils, right? (laughs) Model UN Conference. So what are your tips on, you know, through those experiences and through the journey uh, you've taken on, effective communication and audience engagement because you've made a lot of that for that UN conference.
1: A lot of speaking at Model UN is always impromptu and it's It's improvised as you go along. So to communicate effectively, what I always do is I think to myself, what is it that I wanna communicate to my audience? You need to have that clear argument because wavering or straying from that argument will decrease the impact your message has on an audience. So think about that one concept you want to stick before you create your speech and then build your rhetoric around that concept because that will just create a clear and cohesive speech and clarity is key All the time.
0: Yes, and not playing games in that sort of way. And I love that because specific knowledge can get you a job, but investing in your communication skills is a great way to progress in your career and perhaps your personal life as well, taking that clear communication and forming that as a habit to improve your relationship, have you relationships in life and friendships, have you experienced that outside of the UN conference? Well, the ability to communicate,
1: we were just talking earlier about how science is so pervasive and affects all fields. When you're in a science fair and when you're competing, that is one of the most important things, the ability to communicate your project effectively to a judge. Now, I never competed at the Arizona State Science Fair, but I know that I did compete at the Connecticut Science Fair. And what they did was one day they'd just look at your project boards, and the next day, they'd call you back. And you could see the ribbons that they put there and the questions that they would write in front of your project so you know what to think about. And the reason why they call you back at all is because you need that human-to-human interaction. If the board was just able to speak for itself, they wouldn't call you back, period. But they would call us back so we could show them how effectively we were able to communicate what we did. And that is also part of what makes someone successful at this level of competition is your ability to vocalize what you did and to sell your project as something that will have a larger impact and show your passion as you talk
0: about it. And also that you brought in the scientific aspect of it, because during the drudging process, you are the one who is truly the ambassador, the representative of your project. And you're the one who is selling the idea on the market of the science fair in that sense. Just for analogy, there are new technologies that... They create this powder infused with a lot of sorts of vitamins and mineral elements so that water is transported to your cells in a much faster way. And a lot of sports people use it. And I think that communication skills can do that job by bringing those complex concepts of science in your research work to the cells, to the receptors, to the judges in a more effective and faster way. And they can have that aha moment, which might, uh, well, get you a prize. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all about uh, how you communicate your project. And I've,
1: I've said this so many times, but it's all about the people. It's all about the people behind the project, the people receiving
0: the project, the people being impacted by the work. And it's important to recognize that. Absolutely. We not only have U.S. audience, but also tuning in from different parts of the world. And they might not be familiar with the Model UN conference. Um, I've seen that appear, you know, in different TV shows, such as an older Olsen movie in London. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it can appear or in the latest um, Netflix show as well. I think never have I ever, but what is the environment like? Uh, Can it be compared to science fairs or is it a bit different when you have to present your country and, you know, interact with people? What's the dynamic like?
1: So in Model UN, everyone is assigned a country and you have to research beforehand what your country's policy is on a certain topic. For example, one topic that I was researching was women's rights Another one could be sex trafficking or um, uh, distribution of food in times of war and scarcity. So those are all also just all sorts of topics that nations have to face on a daily basis. So you have to thoroughly research that and then go up in front of the group and present it. So in that way, it is like Science Fred does have the same presentational aspect in both. Except with Model UN, you're not innovating anything new before and presenting it. Instead, when you go to the conference, you have to work on a new resolution with other delegates. So while you're at the conference, you're innovating as a team. Whereas science fair is more individual, it's more behind the scenes where the innovation goes on. But In Model UN, you come together, and that's the purpose of the conference itself, is to come up with an innovative solution. So in many ways, there are parallels, but it's a little bit different in how you can communicate, as well as the content that you're communicating. But the foundation of both um, Model UN and Science Fair is very similar.
0: I see. And and thank you for the clarification and also finding some connecting links while bringing in the distinction effect as well. Um, And I feel that this Model UN Conference also increases empathy and sympathy in you as you are discovering different highly related fields or topics that we have to deal with now while also paving the way for diplomacy. And that's why my coming up question which is asked frequently on the podcast uh, because we love making an impact but if you could change anything about society what would it be? I would change our society so
1: education knowledge and discovery are the most highly prized things in our society over wealth power or status Education is easier to share than money because there are infinite things to learn, So, and people can both be educated. It's not like if you educate someone, you're losing some of your education, which is what it's like to give someone money. You're losing money from your account, but education is an infinite resource, and in my ideal society, people would hunger for knowledge and to spread knowledge to other people. Providing everyone with a good, equitable education, has other positive ramifications as well. Civic participation would increase, crime levels would decrease, and social inequality would be eradicated. Every other problem that we have, be it health, technological, social, humanitarian, scientific, it's almost always better pursued and sometimes outright resolved when people have the context of a broader education.
0: It is surely beneficial. And as I was listening to your expansion on what you would do as a Tsar of legislation um, sort of situation, knowledge is power, and but knowledge shared is power multiplied. So if you give it to others, it's not going to go in vain. But actually, by the act of giving it to others, you are also going to be blessed and empowered to do so.
1: Yeah, uh, one of my favorite parts about being a scientist or being involved in the STEM field is the ability to share what I know and build capacity in younger people. It's a lot of fun for me. Like I said, I can learn from them as they learn from me. And just knowing that you teaching someone young is like having a hand in the future. It's like giving the future what you know so that they can build on
0: that absolutely you are laying the foundational elements for them and that's why you have to define or help them define the cornerstones in their lives because those are gonna pave the way and how they're going to build their life just tapping it to its true meaning in the upcoming years when of course puberty hits in and everything goes on normal <laughs> the next if question is you've Expanded on how you love um, helping others and help them discover the wonders of science. But if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why to share this special dinner with?
1: I would want to have dinner with Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton is a fascinating scientist. He came up with some of the theories of calculus and foundational uh, classical mechanics. But what I would want to talk about is I want to talk about where science has come since then and if he had predicted that because Isaac Newton's classical mechanics works well on a large scale. But now we start to see quantum theory emerge for smaller objects. and at at the atomic scale and what I want to talk about with him is did he predict that did he see that happening and what does he think about that because anytime when sometimes we make a huge discovery we might think that oh like that's it now there's nothing more to discover I'm wondering you know did he predict that would be expansions on his theory or did he think that his theory was final and i'd want to uh obviously i'm taking calculus right now and it's a little difficult so i'd like to get like some help from isaac newton himself on some of the questions that i have about that but he, this is, yeah he's a fascinating figure I'd, I'd be sure to have lots of apple dishes you know, around like apple pie and stuff like that for dessert because of his apple story. And I'd like to talk to him about his discovery process and whether it was actually the apple that fell from the tree and hit him on the head or what was it when he had the idea that something is always bringing um, objects down towards the earth and how people reacted to him when he came out with a new scientific theory just like how he would react to
0: the scientific theories that we have today that build off of his previous ideas. That would be, I think, an awesome encounter with the added element of having him as a tutor for your calculus class. But Isaac Newton was also an innovator in that sense, that he ditched the light bulb element and brought in the apple instead for having a new idea, just out of the bloom. And on that, I think that if he would discover the advances in quantum theory you've mentioned, perhaps his nicely brushed hair slash wig he he knows that best would turn into an electrified Einstein hairstyle in that situation it'd be very interesting to to expand on those topics and ask information from him what do you think what's the most shocking quantum theory application that would be the most appalling to him
1: I was learning about wave-particle duality, and I was thinking that it's hard to get your, like, head around the fact that, like, light is a wave, but it's also a particle at the same time. I think that that would be a really confusing idea for him to understand, as well as for, like, anyone right now to understand. Students, teachers, anyone. It's, It's a bit of a difficult concept to grapple with. And I think that Newton, I don't even know if he had... He would consider a motion of objects that small, like photons, to be applicable to his classical mechanics. But um, I think it would be interesting to see how he's able to... react to the wave-particle duality of small objects.
0: It would be, you know, very uh, cool to see his reaction because just as you said, it might be hard to grasp even for us because it can be similar when you are trying to look at two different directions at the same time and it's just not possible. Now we are going to do a little bit of a game section here called the this or that game So, as its name suggests, you gotta choose either or.
1: Okay, I'm excited.
0: All right, coming in with an ice cream flavor, cookies and cream or mint chocolate chip? Oh, I love mint chocolate chip, it's my favorite. Okay, going for the second one. Would that be your first flavor to opt for or do you have one that, um, that tops it?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It depends on the day. Sometimes i like like a fruity sorbet as well if it's really, really hot out. But other times I'm just like a, a plain vanilla person. But I, I like mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate chip would always be
0: like my first at the top
1: of my list.
0: And yeah, a sorbet is definitely refreshing, um, especially during the hot days we've lived so far. And then the second one is casual or dressed up oh casual casual is so fun it's my favorite part about quarantine
1: is that you can be casual as long as your video is off you can just chill
0: out (laughs) right and even during your video is on if you are you know just recorded from the bottom up the top (laughs) yeah like the waist up the third one is swimming in the ocean or in a pool oh
1: that's a good question
0: (sighs) I like the pool.
1: Pool's always fun. But I love the ocean. I don't know if I would swim there or I would just like sit and let the waves wash over. But there's just something magnificent about just looking off into the ocean and it never ends. And I love the waves and this and the salty water and even like the sand under my toes and the seashells. I love the
0: ocean so much. I'd go the ocean. I guess you've also some in the Indian Ocean. Um,
1: I have actually once. I went to a beach in Mumbai and I think this was uh, not necessarily in the Indian Ocean, but it was Indian waters. And I liked it there too. It was nice. It was at night though, so I couldn't see the waves. But... They were there and and you could hear them. So it's a a totally different experience to swim in the ocean.
0: Rich, live and aquatic area. The fourth one is Spanish or Italian? Uh, Like language. Movies? I don't know what's that. Um, yeah, I thought about language, but you can go into gastronomy or movies if you oh. want to make that decision.
1: Okay, well, the language, I can speak Spanish, so I would probably say Spanish because then I'd understand what everyone is saying. Uh, but um, for cuisine, uh, I would probably prefer Italian cuisine, but I, I also like... Uh, Spanish food, but it has a lot of meat in it, so, and I'm vegetarian, so, like, paella and dishes like that that are very seafood-based. I like both cuisines, I just like Italian a lot.
0: You can't really do en la plancha. (laughs) I also saw that you worked for a Spanish organization, Si Se Puede, in your extracurriculars, where I guess you could use your knowledge in Spanish? Yeah, uh, Si Se Puede, they are a nonprofit organization that uh, sponsors
1: robotics teams and uh, helps uh, low-income families in the community. And I, I really like uh, volunteering with them. I also like to do uh, community interpretation and translate materials for nonprofit organizations from English into Spanish. I do that a lot. That's what I, I like doing that because it's a challenge. Yeah, I get to use my skills, I get to do something good for the community.
0: I'm really glad to hear that you are well-versed in a variety of languages, uh, but I think the fun part about language learning is that it's not just restricted to the classroom or writing a paper or doing uh, an ACT in a different language, but applying it in a broader scale and having the opportunity to use those language skills and, you know, help people or help organizations for the better. Being able
1: to speak different languages. I love language in general and I'm looking into like uh, NLP, natural language processing and machines and stuff like that and programming. And I'm really interested in computational linguistics. So maybe in the future I might want to pursue something in that field with uh, like um creating like voice assistants that are able to be multilingual and speak in multiple
0: languages and interpret commands in different languages as well. so so you're combining your linguistic background with uh, computational languages. So you cannot only pick up, you know, French or Italian in this orienting session, but also CS languages, which I think is awesome. The fifth one is, are you an early bird or a night owl? Lately,
1: I've been both an early bird and a night owl now that school is on. But I definitely prefer early bird because... Um, I'm more focused in the morning, at night. It's like everything I've done throughout the day just keeps on building and building and building, I just wanna go to sleep. But in the morning, I'm fresh, I'm ready to work, and that's when I get most of my best work done, is in the early hours of
0: the day. Yeah, I feel you too. I function the same way, so a virtual high five. (laughs) Yeah. The closing question, is something I ask from every podcast guest. And I think that it's so great to dig deeper and personalize the research experience you've had um, in the past and now you are conducting as well, the moment, your project. But what does science mean to you? To me, science is all about the people. It's about the people
1: you're able to make your mark on. It's about the people you present your project to. And it's about the people who are doing the innovation. Discovery is very important, and innovation is very important, but what's more important than that is a scientist's choice to use that discovery in a positive way, which makes science such a compelling field. There's so much to learn, so much to share, and we can still go so far, the boundaries are Endless for whatever we want to do.
0: I absolutely agree with you on that note. And I think it just encapsulates your own personality, how you embody science in your personal life as well and how you can use it to have a greater influence on the lives of people. And I just want to thank you for, you know, expanding on your innovations and how you want to bring that innovation closer to others by your extracurricular activities and by just your personal approach as well. And I think you've shared lessons during this podcast that uh, the listeners can take to heart and actually actualize it in their own lives as well. So thank you for that too. Thank you for having me here. It was
1: very nice. I, I didn't know what to expect when I came. It's my first time on a podcast, but it was really fun. I found it to be very comfortable. I was able to talk very freely, and I'm very thankful for, for to you for creating such a welcoming environment here on this podcast and for the amazing opportunity I have to talk a little bit about my work and share a little bit about myself with your audience.
0: Thank you. I'm very humbled by your words and that is truly the goal of the podcast is to make the guest feel comfortable to express his or herself and communicate ideas that are going to be so impactful in the lives of others. And I think you fully achieved that during this episode and I couldn't sense that it was your first recording. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. Uh,
1: You're very kind. And I'm really excited. I, I, I look forward to recording, you know, something similar again in the future, maybe for some other purposes.
0: Absolutely. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always... Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.